This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 54. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 54 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and I'm happy to welcome to the WCA family our new sponsor, Focal Monitors. So welcome. Got a little bit of a cold for you today, so you can hear it in my voice. If you listen to the show enough, you can tell that uh, I got a little drainage going on here. I know, too much information, so uh, I'll spare you the details. Anyhow, coming at you from uh, Michigan, from Farmington Hills, Michigan, for this episode. It's uh, the holiday time, and I am... uh, at my in-laws here in a bedroom on a laptop with my uh, my Universal Audio Apollo and uh, my uh, AT uh, BP40 here at my side backing me up. So uh, had to keep the show going. Didn't uh, don't really record the shows too far in advance, and so here I am in a bedroom uh, squashed into a corner with the laptop hanging off the side of a, a bedside table here. So little gorilla here that's what we're doing today no snow in michigan and you know i've mentioned it before i i'm not a big fan of snow unless you're skiing of course and i really don't do that all that often so here i am in michigan no snow uh it is the holiday season the sun is out and uh, i gotta say i'm really pleased about that (laughs) sorry to be such a downer you know but uh yeah hey i'm really happy about it anyways yeah uh focal monitors now added to our family here at uh, working class audio and uh, just to let you know, uh, at the NAM show in January, and that runs January 21st through the 24th. Let me actually go over to Chrome here and confirm that. January 21st through the 24th in Anaheim, California, I will be doing a show Thursday evening uh, interviewing uh, a to-be-determined guest from the Focal booth there at NAM. So if you are going to be at NAM, please stop by. It's going to be Thursday evening. We don't have a specific time set up yet, but... Uh, should be uh, nailing that down shortly. I believe it's going to be around the 4 or 5 o'clock area. So that's a tentative time. But uh, Thursday evening, yeah, plan on being there. and Stop by and visit. Say hello. Have a listen to the guest I'm going to interview. I, I We have a few names floating around, so I can't say yet. We need to confirm before I open my mouth and tell you. So I'll let you know about that. So, yeah, here in Michigan, Farmington Hills, was able to meet with... Uh, uh, Ed from uh, Woodshed Studios here in uh, Michigan, in Oak Park, Michigan, is where Ed's studio is at. And I uh, met with Ed and uh, Ryan. Thanks for you guys. Thanks for meeting me up at a coffee shop and uh, buying me an Americano, one of my favorites. Good to hang with you. And, you know, in the future, as I travel around and, and uh, have the ability to do so, if you are, you know, wanting to reach out and want to have a cup of coffee and talk shop, you know, always send me an email and say, you know, hey, I'm in, blah, blah, blah. Are you going to be there? Um, certainly going to be in Anaheim uh, in January. So uh, feel free to reach out and we can, maybe we could put together a big working class audio coffee hangout time. I'm not sure, you know, but just throwing that out there. If you're interested in, in doing that in the future, let me know. Um, let's see. So as I said, it is the holiday time. First of all, in regards to our sponsors, you know, with Universal Audio, they have some deals run until the end of the year and time is running out. So I just want to remind you, pardon me, my voice is a little scratchy there. 
Uh, just want to remind you that, uh, you know, there is some, there's three fantastic sets of offers coming from Universal Audio. And as I'm sitting here staring at my own Apollo uh, twin, I can tell you that, um, you know, the deal for getting some free plugins, if you buy an Apollo twin, that runs out at the end of the year. So make sure you are, uh, you know, aware of that. And if you're unsure of the details, you can always click on the banner on the Working Class Audio site that's on the right-hand side. So be sure to check that out. And if you're going to be uh, buying an Apollo, a rack mount Apollo, like an 8P or an 8 or a uh, an old-school Silverface one, make sure that you uh, are aware that if you do that, you're going to get a free satellite quad box. So if you buy the Firewire one, you're going to get a Firewire satellite box. If you buy the, the 8P or the regular 8, uh, the ones with the black face, uh, those are Thunderbolts. So you will get a quad core satellite box free. That's a good deal. You know, gives you a little more DSP power for, for the money. And of course, can't forget what's going on over there at the uh, Universal Audio store. So if you're already a, a UA owner, a UAD owner of cards and boxes and, you know, t- uh, twins and Apollos and all that, Make sure you go on over to the store and check out their deals. They do have some very serious deals going on with the plugins, and I've mentioned it before. One of my favorites is the uh, the Valley People Dynamite. That's that's a steal at seventy five bucks to me. So that's over there. Check it out, and that all runs out at the end of the year. And of course, uh, with UA, you know your uh, registration for these products kind of happens automatically because you have a UA account. So they're, you know, they're aware that, you know, oh, hey, this person just got a a twin. So we need to give them some free plugins or this person just uh, signed up their, uh, their new Apollo 8 or 8P and we need to send them a quad box, quad satellite box. So make sure you take advantage of that before the end of the year. Even though it is the holiday time and I am in Michigan, what do I choose to do? interview somebody in San Francisco. How about that? In the Bay Area. I have to fly away to interview this person. So I have my friend Sebastian Richard on today. Not a household name by any stretch, but the reason I wanted to have Sebastian on is because he's definitely one of the harder working people I know in the world of pro audio. You you know, he uh, he has a studio called Mission Recorders in San Francisco, runs that as a co-op, does live sound and tours, and uh, also does corporate audio. You know, I've known him for a long time, and I just, I see how hard he works. He's also a, a builder of equipment, and I thought that was a fascinating angle to uh, to talk about. So, Sebastian Richard coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So, yeah, here we are, uh, just kind of a recap over the last year. You know, we uh, started out with two episodes a month, and uh, we've graduated to four this, of course, is our 54th episode. And as we uh, head into 2016, we, we hope to bring you more content and expand the, uh, the scope of the website. So I hope you'll hang with us. I hope you'll spread the word. We just hit, uh, as of this morning, as I'm recording this, we just hit 2,000 likes on Facebook. And uh, we are headed towards 1,100 uh, on uh, Twitter. So we hope to bring you some more content in the new year that I think will... Uh, inform you and help you make uh, better decisions about what you're doing in your your recording world. And I hope to bring you uh, even more variation in terms of uh, the people that we have on. Definitely want to branch off into some uh, more live sound people and uh, more location sound people. So uh, yeah, looking forward to the new year. And I hope that your New Year's resolutions come to fruition for all of you. Yeah, that's about it. With that in mind, let's uh, let's jump into our interview here with Sebastian Richard here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. Thanks. Well, let's give the audience a little little background. First of all, you and I know each other because of our mutual connection to the, we'll call it the coast building, essentially, right? Yep, yep. Is that, is that what our, our connection is? Or does it go back before that? I don't think we met before that. And we met because you were primarily working with Ben Jonas at the coast building before I was there. And then I came along and kind of stumbled into the spot because Ben left and eventually I came in and you had some history there. And somehow in the, in the process of the changeover of uh, control of that, of that coast building of that room, that Bill Putnam room, you and I started to chat and, and, and become friends. And uh, I think we hung out a bit in uh, Tucson at the uh, Potluck Audio Conference. In fact, oh, I yeah. think it was you and me, Michael Romanowski and Joe Ciccarelli. I think we all went to the Chicago Music Store together. I think Joe. Oh my God, I love that place. I think Joe had a, a rental and Joe drove us. And uh, we all went to go look at gear in Tucson at, the, uh, at that, you know, that famed music store. So... Over the years, I've kind of gotten to know you a bit, and what I do know of you is that uh, you've turned into, from definitely what uh, our mutual friend uh, Ben Bernstein says, you're like one hell of a smart guy when it comes to uh, building stuff, building audio gear. Um, you're, you're doing front of house sound, you're running a studio, you're doing some tours, and you're kind of, you know, you're kind of all over the place. You're, you're <laughs> diversifying in, in like what many, many audio guys are doing. So how's it going, man? How's it going? Uh, <laughs> how's it going? Like juggling all these things? Uh, it's, it's like, I just wear hats. I don't do it at the same time. I don't think really. I just like some days I wake up and it's like studio day and some days I wake up and it's, uh, it's live sound day and it's corporate audio day. It's tour day. It's, it's like, I just, I just, I just try to do it one thing at a time because I find that if I try to do more than one thing at a time, it doesn't go so well. You know, I think it's like, for any field, really, when you start going to business for yourself, it's about managing stress. And like for me, like accepting that everything isn't going to just be horrible if I don't deal with it or like, or if I don't have an answer or if I don't have a solution, then I just sort of stay calm and don't like run around like chicken little or something. So I think that the biggest one for me is trusting in the fact that like I've been doing this this long. I mean, I'm, I'm not like the most important dude ever, but I've been doing it this long. And, and eventually the answer will come. So I think that, that balancing it has been about like trusting in myself more than anything, any skill that I can put it on. You know? Kind of focusing in on the comment you just said about uh, accepting that it's not going to be horrible, meaning, yeah. that, meaning that if you don't act on, a, on, on every single detail, it's not going to turn out so bad. It's just that you can only manage what you can manage. I mean, I guess it's also a part of who I am as a person. Like I sort of have a tendency to imagine the worst case scenario. So when I'm always like, oh, am I going to take this risk? Is this what I want to do? Like, can I go on the road for four months and then come back? Like, what's the worst thing? Nobody's ever going to call me again. Everyone's going to forget that I live, you know? So it's like, oh man, no, screw it. I'm just going on the road. I'm going to do it. Everything's going to be fine. I think that's, that's what that, that comment speaks to. How do you balance the the different things. I mean, I mean, as you said, you take it one day at a time and, and each day you wear today's, as you said, is corporate audio day. Today is recording a band day. Other than taking it one day at a time, like if you're on the road, are you, how are you handling the stress of knowing I have a studio back home and is everything okay at the studio? You got to surround yourself with people who you trust. I, I bring people into the studio, but I don't bring the public necessarily into the studio so that when things are going on back home, 
I know that I have like one of the guys you should definitely talk to if you can is Joe Finocchio. He's like a cornerstone. There's another guy, Jordan Soblu. These are guys that are in my studio who I surround myself with by choice because I decided at some point that it couldn't be an open season on the studio that I could just have anybody in here. I had to have people I could really trust. As far as the other things go, it's weird. I mean, when you're good, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know, it sounds kind of like I'm tooting my own horn more than I should, but when you're good, you're good. And then people just know that like when you're back in town, everything's okay. So oddly enough, I don't manage it because I can't manage it because I don't have the bandwidth to manage it when I'm doing one thing. Like, you know, you got to love the one you're with. If I'm on the road, it's like 100% me on the road. If I'm back home and I'm doing the studio, it's 100% the studio. If I'm doing live sound, it's 100% live sound. But when I'm not doing it and I'm doing something else, I make the complete shift back and forth. Interesting. And when you say you surround yourself with people you trust, these are these are engineers that you share the studio with. Yeah, exactly. That are that, so it's a co-op type situation. Yeah, it is. It's a co-op. Tell situation. us about the studio. What's it? First of all, what's it called? It's called Mission Recorders. Okay. Mission Recorders is like a space that I moved into. I got the lease. I figured it out because I thought it was 2008, but I got the lease in April 1st, 2009. It was like a really big empty space in a basement in the Soma. Uh, I got it with another engineer that I used to work with at Coast Recorders, Andrew Tavis, who's now moved to the East Coast. It was just an empty space. So I was like, I got to have a place to work because I had conversations around of like moving into places or figuring out some way to like, you know, like join in because I don't know how many people like having a studio on their own. I actually don't even like having the studio on my own. I like having the partnership. So I formed a partnership with Andrew and then I just kind of, as I built the studio, I extended that partnership with a lot of people, as, you know, like as many people as I could bring in and sort of make it all work for everyone so that we could all have a home base to make great records. And so it's been this thing where like, without having the pressures of being like a commercial studio, I can really kind of hone in on a couple different things. One is it is it it's not the most soundproof environment on earth. I didn't I didn't have all the money in the world to make it like the perfect environment to make it the most soundproof. So some days, you know, when they're doing some construction upstairs, you know, we manage it a little bit. We say, you know, we try to work with the clients and and work on that, but at the same time it means that my overhead can be like really really low. So so I've tried to manage it by keeping the overhead low and then distributing the costs among a bunch of people so that I can have a great space and I can afford to invest in the studio without if, you know, when January comes around or I don't know, some months that are not so great for studios that I'm not sitting there footing the whole bill and wiping out any savings that I might've had during that year. So the space is a group of us all working together for something better. It's a live room, pretty big live room. I don't know, there's no video in this, so forget that, but there's a big live room. I don't know, it's 15 by 30. Mm -hmm. And uh, the control room is a medium-sized control room. I bought a Neve from Beck, like, on Craigslist, which is a fun story. Wait, you bought a uh, Neve console from Beck? Off of Craigslist. <laughs> <clears throat> That's funny, because we just had on Daryl Thorpe, who works with Beck. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I guess he was kind of uh, the, the guy that I talked to. Man, I can't remember his name now. But the guy that I bought the console through, because I never actually dealt with Beck, he was just talking about how Beck's kind of making a move to API because he has more flexibility and all that. So he he was selling this Neve, and he before going to Vintage King, I guess he was like, all right, well, let's just see what happens on Craigslist. So he sold it on Craigslist. So it's been awesome to have a centerpiece with a lot of like tactile ability to go in and out of something that really sounds great. And I built a bunch of gear. I nerded out on the gear here, and I just kept adding people. And it's been a really great environment for me to feel a lot of freedom 
and to also be a part of giving others the freedom to make the records that they want to make. What's your, if I may ask, the your arrangement with the other engineers as far as your financial arrangement? Does everybody just contribute or per month to pay a certain amount of rent, or do they contribute part of what they make? Or So in the spirit of keeping it simple, they each pay rent okay. uh, based on the number of days they use, and they have to bring in two pieces of gear, which I, you know, I say anything you can bring in. It Usually I can't, I don't say it's instruments. It's, I try to make it so that it's something that everybody can share in, you know? Right. So if it's something that everybody can share in, then, then there's a benefit to that, to the group as a whole. And uh, so, and also the point of bringing the gear is this whole skin of the game concept so that I know that if someone's leaving their gear in the studio and they have to leave it here as part of their sort of deposit, um, they have a vested interest in treating things well. That's a so, good point. That's a good point. So you provide the basics like the console and, and, a, and a Pro Tools rig, right? I don't even own the Pro Tools rig. Oh. I just own the console, microphones. Mic stands, cables. I own the computer, but I don't own the cards. That's Jordan has the cards in there. Uh, I don't own the speakers. Another guy has the speakers. It's like, it's some rock soup, man. It's some serious rock soup. But it it makes it a lot better. Oh, that's cool. And tell me a bit about this gear building, because I, I keep hearing about it from our mutual friends. Oh, Sebastian has built this, and he's done a great job with this. Obviously, a lot of that comes from, you know, the economy of it. It's cheaper to build it in some cases. And in some cases not, but tell me about your angle with it. I've got ADD, so sometimes I don't want to make records. Sometimes I want to do something else. So I think it all started from that of like being online and checking <laughs> it out. And it's like the whole tape op world too of like guys like just making things out of random parts. And so, and I've always, I was like a Lego kid growing up. So that interested me. So I don't even think that my interest was like that I would make great gear when I first started out. I, I was like, this is going to suck, but whatever, I'm going to do it anyways. And then I realized after I built, I think I built a couple things that were like, it was weird because there's an issue of stability. So as you build things, you have to build them to last because the studio environment's not that friendly. So I, I started out making things that like didn't sound that great or kind of broke down or like Phantom Power would be buzzy. And then it just built up from there. And I mean, the group DIY forum is like amazing. It's, it's like how you, there's lots of people who are like just doing it for themselves and they might like design a circuit or share an old circuit or a new circuit from some vintage gear or some, you know, modifications of vintage gear for that people can build today. So I started just building things off the group DIY forum until I got to the point where I could kind of just do it on my own and read a schematic and figure out what part of which schematic I wanted to harvest from here or there. And I think like my first real success was building this. I built this, it was probably more than I should have done, but I built this eight channel, eight channel API preamp. It was the first time where like they turned it on and started using it. And everybody in the studio was like, yo dude, that sounds pretty good, man. I think we should, I think we should do that, you know? And so it's been like, I use it on every session for everything all the time. And it's just like a rat rod black box with like a bunch of knobs on the front, some switches for Phantom, but I know what's inside of it, which is also the part that I find pretty amazing is like, you know, now I know the gear from inside out. So, you know, I, if I want to make a decision about what I'm going to do to a channel or how I'm going to run it, you know, if I'm going to run things hot or if I'm going to run things calm or I want things super clean or what kind of distortion I want, I have a much better understanding now than I ever did. So just crawling inside the gear has been really cool. And owning a Neve is like, 
and fuck, dude, you got to fix this thing all the time. Like I, I, I got to fix it all the time. So knowing how to fix my own Neve and not having to rely on other techs to come in is also just part of my whole like concept of keeping my overhead down so I can keep making the records I want to make. It's really fed into like a, a great many things, being able to make gear I couldn't afford, being able to understand my gear and being able to maintain my gear on all three of those fronts. It's been an amazing, like it's an amazing thing to do. If I asked you what a percentage of savings on the average for building a piece of gear, uh, what, what, what do you think you could come up with? If I said, you know, if you were to buy that new, buy something new versus building it, how much do you save really? Do you think? Not much, because you got to figure out how much your time's worth. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but if you were to build it and sell it, you know. Um, okay. I mean, the, the, API, the API, the eight-channel API, which is like, I decided that I wanted four of those channels to be Melkor, which pretty much wipes out the competition in terms of being able to do anything. Like, I don't think you could buy what it is. I mean, you could get some Melkor preamps, but you'd have to have like a, you wouldn't have a great option. So just to say eight channels with of my API, they have four channels of Melkor in it. Uh, it was like 1200 bucks for me to build it. Okay, but you can and turn build, around and sell that for what? I don't know. I think that the four-channel API preamp is like, you know, I guess it's like 3,200 or something, I think, new for the four-channel. It'd probably be like 2,500 used, I'd imagine. Oh, That's okay. probably the world for the four-channel. So it's like it's like I bought what would cost me $4,000 or $5,000 at a really good deal for $1,200. Huh. I mean, it's not, it's no small, it's no small sum. Like I have this preamp right now. Well, not a preamp, it's a compressor, a 176 that I built for myself. And the 176 was, you know, it was not a kit totally, but it was like, I bought a circuit board and then I built it off the circuit board and then I modified it kind of heavily. um, So it can work as a compressor and a preamp built into one because it's got that much gain in it. It sounds amazing. It's like, it's the first time where I was like, I'm not sure that I could buy that even if I wanted to. And that thing cost me like 1500 bucks to build. And it's basically a 175B. So I don't have, it's like the, the, pre, the two predecessor to the 1176 without a ratio control. And it's like, I mean, it's just like, it's mind numbing. Like every time I, every time people see it, cause they don't know what gear is and they're like, oh, okay, well that thing looks pretty cool. I guess I'm not going to use it. And then somebody plugs into it and they hear how it sounds. And they're like, yo, can you build me one of those? <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's been cool. And it's not that it's just that it's so great to have, to not feel limited by the fact that I don't have enough money to buy all the gear in the world that I want. And to be, to feel creative, to get these sort of old school sounds that like an old school tube compressor kind of has to offer. At what point did you start to build and, and how did you get into that? Oh man, it started super slow. Like, I got on that group DIY forum and I bought like, I was like, I had a pie in the sky. Like, oh man, I'm going to build all my gear in the studio. It's going to be amazing. Yo, in like 2003, I bought a PC board, like a printed circuit board to build my first kit. And I didn't think, I don't think I built my first real preamp or finished my first real project until 2007. So it was a long process. And that, and I finally built that first PC board that I had. It's this like EQ and it sounds cool. And it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's exponential. It's a really, really, really steep learning curve. At least for me, it was because I had nobody to show me anything. I kind of had to like learn how to do it. I did have some education when I went to Expressions. Uh, they had like a studio maintenance class, which was cool. It taught you how to read a cir- uh, like a circuit diagram, which is the basis. If you can go there, it's at least some starting point. Huh. Have you thought about going into boutique gear building on the side? Yeah. No, not really. I mean... I guess I haven't really thought about it. I don't think that, I think that it's like one thing to to build it for yourself, but it, the financial aspects of building something for someone else 
don't really make it very viable on a one-off piece kind of thing for me. I think that what I would have to charge for a week of my time added on to, you know, the parts for something like this, this, uh, this 176 is like, you know, it's $1,800 in parts and it's a week worth of labor. Uh, you know, what's a week worth of anybody's time worth? Yeah. You know, I mean, even at a really good deal, yeah, it comes out to five grand probably somewhere in that range. Yeah. So, so I think when you start talking about gear that costs five grand, people get a little bit nervous, you know? They do. Does it give you a, a different um, perspective or appreciation for pro audio manufacturers today? Maybe an appreciation from the perspective of understanding. An appreciation from the perspective of acceptance is not really what I have. I have like, I see that, you know, the house has to make something for, for, their, for, their, for their world. And I think it's the sort of the world of, of retail audio. Like, okay, you double the cost of something. You know, okay, everything doubles. So I made this $100 device. Now it's worth $200 in-house sell to a wholesaler. That wholesaler sells it for $400. And then Guitar Center sells it for their double markup, which doesn't really happen because it's Guitar Center. But maybe they sell it for $500. So now I got $500 worth of gear. I got $100 worth of gear for $500. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like, all right, well. And <laughs> I've never been, I've also like never really been a proponent that's like my best advice to anybody. Forget about the gear side of it, but if I always want to buy things that I could eventually sell one day. I always feel so bad when I buy like the cheapest thing in the store and I know that no one in their right mind is going to buy this thing used. So, so I like being able to make this investment in gear for me that is like that I know is always going to be worth something, you know? It'll be worth something. You know, like a uh, 8-channel API preamp for $1200 if I want to sell it for $1200. I know it didn't cover my time, but I don't think anybody's going to say no to that deal. So it's like, for me, it's a nice investment, you know. It's frustrating, though, in that perspective, too, because I think sometimes people see black boxes with knobs on them. And unless it's a name brand or it's got, you know, some maybe some extra lights in a VU meter, they don't always know what is inside and, and if it's even better or worse than something commercially available oh yeah and you and you i mean you don't know either like let's say you're a traveling engineer and you walk into somebody else's studio i mean it's it's actually true across the board as i say this i realize i'm self-editing but like you know you don't know that somebody built the thing that you're looking at properly you don't know that like you don't know that but then again you just don't know that someone's tape machine's been maintained you don't know that their pro tools rig is maintained like People think you don't even have to maintain your Pro Tools rig at all, but like you got to maintain all the gear in your studio. So I think that I guess I guess it's interesting because people just don't know what a thing does, and in the studio you don't always have a lot of time to start experimenting with things, especially in the world that I live in. You know, I need results like tomorrow. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean the results like today, like yesterday, and it's tomorrow, and I need those results right now. You know, like I don't have time to like mess around figuring out if this preamp has like a nice setting at ten and two. You know, you mentioned this earlier. Your your goal of keeping your overhead low. You know, with the studio, there's a lot of expenses that can come about. Are you considered the head of the studio, and do you take on extra expenses that that the other guys don't? have to deal with we have an agreement that they will take on extra expenses but i've actually never really followed through with that so i do take on the extra expenses when it comes up like insurance or you know like i'll stomach the rent increase for a few months so that i can make it i can make it annual for the guys instead of just like giving them a rent increase the minute it happens sometimes i'll do things like that 
But yeah, maintenance. I, I take maintenance on because what I don't want for to happen is I don't necessarily want anyone to invest in the studio, um, like a long term investment in the studio. Maintenance is cool, but but I do the I, I do the maintenance. I do the wiring. If there's a new patch bay that comes in, I do the patch bay. Like I don't I don't spread those expenses. And monthlies, uh, you know, I just build the monthly costs into it so they can be a nice flat flat rate so nobody has to like you know, bifurcate their thoughts about how much the studio costs. Right. So let's say there's a fire and, and, or a theft and you know, that obviously you have to file a claim with your insurance company, you know, and one of the other guys loses a piece of gear. I guess you just, you know, you cover that for them. I know. No, they have to maintain their own insurance on all their equipment. Interesting. Okay. Because my, my insurance underwriter didn't want to do it. Huh? They, my, you know, insurance companies for studios. I mean, man, dude, Figure out what your insurance company is covering and never trust the salesperson on what your insurance company is covering. I mean, Katrina and Sandy are two really important times in the in the history of studios where some people found out that what they've been paying month in and month out didn't really do what they wanted them to do, you and, know? Yeah, they went on blind faith, I, I guess, for some of the um, situations. It's not insane to think that, you know, there should be some regulation in an industry where you pay you pay every month and you think that you should be covered when you're, when you're done, but it isn't always that way. And asking the underwriter and not the salesperson what your insurance is doing for you, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's a view inside the sausage factory nobody wants to do, but you'd rather do it now than find out later. That's true. Huh. So... What did you do? Did you sit down and go, okay, well, do you cover this? Do you cover that? Do you, you know, do you, did you grill your insurance agent? Yeah. Uh, Stubble, Paul Stubblebine recommended the insurance agent that I went to. I bought my insurance off my insurance agent. And then my insurance agent was an agent that, that was like, I think he, I don't know that he only deals with the Hartford, but he sells for the Hartford. And then I called up the Hartford and started having an email interaction with a guy uh, at the company who was oddly enough, more than happy to talk to me about all manner of incidences. Really? So yeah, he was, he was pretty straightforward about it. Um, because his job isn't to sell. I mean, it's already sold. So his job is just to let you know what you bought. To describe the product. Exactly. And so what kind of questions did you ask? You know, my landlord has a pipe over the like, console. If that pipe bursts, who's fa- who, who, what's going to happen? What's the, what's the reality of it? And he was like, oh, well, we're not going to cover that. That's strictly written in your contract that it's not covered in like page 45 and 10 point font, like somewhere in the bottom somewhere. Yeah, you better make sure that if your landlord has a pipe over your console that that's that's covered for. I mean, if I take my microphone to another studio, if, uh, you know, one of the guys wants to take one of the microphones out to Stinson Beach and do some work out there and he doesn't come back with the microphone, what's the deal? Oh, that's on him. That's just blind theft. Even though somebody stole it from him, you know. Or other incidences like, you know, I have some coverage for me to move my gear around, but uh, a one dumb thing is, uh, let's say somebody breaks into your car and you have a car alarm in your car and the car alarm uh, is disabled by the thief, then the insurance company won't cover the piece of stolen gear because the car alarm didn't function properly. Huh. You know, that I mean, you know, it, it's just that you want to know what you're buying. Like, you really want to know that people do what they say they're going to do. Certain insurance costs more than others, but knowing that you're covered in your insurance because uh, covered in, for your business so that you can continue to function is really big, man. It's really, really big. And, you know, we don't, we don't buy insurance for, for when there's not a problem. You buy insurance for when there is a problem. So finding out what's up is, you know... I don't know how we got down this path, but it's it's something that I never really want to deal with until I saw Sandy going on and all the guys in New York like like rinsing out all their gear and I was freaked out and I was like, "Yo, man, what what would this mean for me?" Yeah, it's pretty serious. 
Yeah. Especially when you own a, a big centerpiece console like you do. Oh yeah, man. I, this, this Neve is like, it's more than I can afford, man. It is really just more than I can afford. What, what so model just, Neve is it? It's a 5315. Okay. So it's got 33114s in it, which are, it's a two-stage preamp. Some of the channels are discrete, some are not. And, you know, it sounds really, it sounds really, really good. I also have the, like, 33314s, which is, like, you know, in the same generation as all those, like, awesome Neve console compressors. I have four channels of it. It's a four-bus uh, console. It's a really simple console. I use it mostly for its preamps, but I mix through it, too, and it's it's fun. It's pretty awesome. All right. I hope you're enjoying our interview here with my uh, friend Sebastian Richard. Very hardworking guy. Want to make sure that, you know, as we were talking about in the beginning of the show, the end of the year is coming. And of course, that means a lot of the good promos are coming to an end. And one of the good promos out there is the one from Audio Technica. And that's the one we have listed on the website. On the right hand side, that banner will take you to a page that will list out all of the 40 series microphones that they are offering up. And uh, if you buy one of those before the end of the year, you can get a free pair of M50 headphones from Audio-Technica. So you certainly want to take advantage of that. And I know that uh, if you're not familiar with those microphones or any, uh, you know, any particular ones, you know, maybe you haven't heard one of the ribbon mics. Well, we do have some samples there. If you look in the uh, Working Class Audio and the WCA bonus content, uh, if you go to that part of the website, you'll see in the uh, pull-down menu there is a link to some samples that we made over at Bird and Egg with uh, Nina Michella and uh, James Meter and Cole Williams. You know, if you're curious about how one of those mics sounds on a guitar amp or on a vocal, have a listen there. Download the samples. We did those a little while back, and those might help you make a, a better decision about a mic and which one you're going to buy. So make sure and check that out on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio site. All right, let's get back into it with... Sebastian Richard here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Bottom line is, is when it comes to insurance, you need to allocate some of your time to get in touch with the insurer and find out the particulars about your situation, like you with the pipe over the console and what that's going to mean. Would you ever consider not having insurance and just taking that money per month and putting it into an account to plan for disaster? Trip and fall. That's really the two words that you should think about. Mm. Trip and fall is when you run a business and somebody's going to sue you. You really don't want to be doing that. I mean, you you could. I mean, I get, you know, everybody has the risk that they can assess, they can they can assume. If you're inviting members of the public into your space, um I think it would be better to be covered. I think it would be, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's, you know, I have to carry a million dollars of liability. I mean, if somebody trips and falls and they do something and they're a litigious little guy, then or gal, or you, you're gonna, it's gonna hurt later. Hmm. Yeah. And that was a requirement of from your landlord. It's a requirement of my lease. I don't have the option to do it otherwise. I have to turn a certificate in every year when I renew my insurance. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that even if you know, even if you're running a sp- studio out of your home and you're and you got people coming in and out, it's it's not a bad idea to have an LLC and be protected. It doesn't cost that much. I mean, it's like I don't know. I guess it's it's all about the business you run. It's like twelve hundred bucks a year, eighteen hundred bucks a year now. Yeah. 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 Well, some, some people, you know, don't want to, don't want to pay that or, 
or not everybody's in this in the same. Not everybody's. If you're not inviting people from the public over to your, then you don't need it. Then you don't need that. Yeah. You know. But if you, you know, it just depends on where you're at. Or you know, if it's members of your band and you know each other well, that's a different world. But if you're inventing, if you're inviting people that you just don't know in, you know, it's it's not the worst. It's not the worst thing to have go on for yourself. You know, or at least just see see where you're covered or not. With many things in the studio, a lot of things you don't realize what you're getting into and you realize how much more complicated it really is. You know, like when I first got into sound, it was turn up the microphone, right? Just turn it, turn it up. And now I realize that there's so much more going on than I ever thought. Insurance is just one of them. It's one of those things that people don't talk about. So Absolutely. tell us, tell us a bit about being on the road. I got into, I got into doing front of house sound because I wanted to be more involved with bands outside of the world of the studio. Mm. It was getting a bit stressful for me to always be like very microscopically involved in records in a manner that was like, you know, it, everything is ana analyzed all the time, you know? So I think one day, you know, I walked into Dunord and... Uh, um, Cafe Dunord, the yeah, former Cafe club Dunord. in San Francisco. Exactly. Uh, which was, you know, downstairs, small spot, small stage, loud bands, burly bar, you know, it was a, it was a cool spot. Uh, an engineer who was working there, who's uh, who's no longer with us, who's a pretty amazing dude, uh, brought me up and and was like, "Hey, man, jump on this thing!" And you know, I need some coverage here and there. And eventually, I became the head guy there. And every minute of the thing, I loved it. It was just like start of the night. Let's do this thing right now. We're really in this together. End of the night, it's done. We have a shot, and we all go home. You know, there's like a side of that where it's like, and there's nothing but rock and roll in the middle. You know that that for me. It was pretty awesome. It wasn't so focused on the gear. It wasn't so focused on that. It's got a lot of immediacy. I mean, that sense of immediacy. It's it's like a sand. You know, one of those. What they call what they call is like sand designs that you do, and the, you make this whole big intricate thing, and at the end you just blow it all away. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, it's a mandala. Is that what those things are called? Yeah, those things are amazing. You just you just make a big a big sculpture, a big crazy thing, and just blow it away at the end of the night, and then hopefully you make people happy and. You know, if you don't make people happy or there's weird things that happen during the night, you know, you laugh it off at the end and you all go home, you know, and I think that I think that you have a chance to start it all over again tomorrow. That side of doing live sound for me and is is just like and just the push like in the studio, I'm always afraid of making things too loud in the live world. If it's too loud, whatever, man, it's more rock and roll if that's that night. I mean, it's always important not to just make things too loud, but I think some nights it could be loud and whatever and we have a great time, you know, I, I think. I think I have a lot of fun doing lifestyle. Do the two things influence one another to you uh, now that you've been doing both for quite some time? Oh, yeah, man. My my ability to like, I thought my ability to find frequencies was pretty good in the studio. Like, you know, we all think we're good at something. It was all right, you know. But in the live world, man, the ear training that goes on in the live world, I hadn't really respected it when I was an engineer doing records. But, man, you, you got to find that frequency like right fucking now. Like yeah. You don't have the time to find that later. Like if there's feedback, you, know, you you find that right now. Like get that right now because somebody's up there like dying, you know? <laughs> so if there's feedback or something, I mean, the feedback's like, that's just not really a part of the studio world. Whereas live, it's like, man, and like it's like 50% of what I do is managing feedback when I'm in a small club doing it by myself. Yeah. And as far as like um, when a band comes in to the studio, I, I assume that you're pretty fast about getting things up and running now. Well, you know, to give credit where credit's due, it's always been a thing that has always been involved in me. I mean, 
I started making records, and there was some fucking old codger in there spending four hours getting tones, and I was like, dude, I am not making a record like that. That's not my world, dude. Let's make this record right now. Like, yo, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. I loaded my shit in. We need to be recording by 1, like, big time. Like, we need to really be recording by 1. And, you know, that flies in the face of many things, but that's the world. Like, I don't live in a world that I have the, like, luxuries of, like, spending five days doing it. For, for regardless of time, you know, like, I mean, regardless of money, it's just the time involved of getting five people or whatever that I might have if I'm doing, you know, all in one tracking in one place. I really enjoy like the immediacy and the speed that, 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 that the live sound has brought to my studio work. And what from the studio do you bring to the live sound world? Do you think? I take it for what it is. You know, sometimes I think that there's, there's, there's a couple schools of engineers and one of the schools that I fall into, I would say is that, when I'm in a small club, I'm always not going to put one or two things in the PA because I'm just going to tuck a few things around it so that I don't have to like murder everyone in the mix. I think it's like this, it's like a, an attention to detail in terms of what's going on. It's not a mechanical action for me. I consider that there's some artistry in what I'm doing when I do a live sound mix. I, I'm not like an operator. I'm a mixer in a live sound environment. And and some days it goes really well for me and some days it doesn't, you know, like you don't always have the liberty of being able to discuss what your, your, your focus is or what your attention is in terms of effects or something else. And then you start doing it and somebody's like, yo, dude, turn that delay off on my vocals. You're killing me. And it's like, oh, yes, sir. Gone, you know, but I, I do really spend some time trying to mix the shows that I'm working on from the perspective of what I've learned in the studio and what works. And some people might do like one thing that I do sometimes is like a little bit of reverb on the kick drum so that the kick drum doesn't sound like it's a tiny little dry box can work on certain records and certain things. And doing that, doing that live is something that I don't know that a lot of people do. Maybe, maybe everyone will be like, yo, I do that totally. But I know that a lot of my coworkers don't do it. And sometimes people are like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, or just really living in there with the vocalist on some effect or something so that you're really like taking out effects when they're not singing and leaving them in when they are. Those are like, you know, those are things that came from my studio life. So moving the faders around was something that I took from my studio world so that I wasn't wasn't ruining the mix and filling it up the space with a bunch of sound. And I started doing that live and it really helped clean up my mixes. Huh. It keeps the drums out of the PA. And these are all small, con like small studio, I mean, small club tricks. Yeah. So. That's interesting. The touring aspect of it versus the, the one night kind of a thing, like, you start. I, I, I only know this because I would see like you know your posts on Facebook. Tonight's office is located here, <laughs> yeah. and, and I always wonder like the decision to go on the road when you have a studio and the work you might the the records you might miss out on or the or versus the the work you definitely have in your hand. I, I would assume that that comes into play. You think you know well if I go on the road for two weeks with this band, I'm going to make this guaranteed amount of money. Meanwhile, the studio, I'm not going to use my time and I might potentially miss out on a really important piece of recorded work. Does that ever cross your mind? Let's, let's go back and talk about me in a very like open way that actually gets into making me somewhat uncomfortable, but let's see what I've done in terms of live sound on the road. So my path of live sound on the road is tiny. It's, it's, it's inconsequential. It looks like it's something probably on Facebook because people see on Facebook everybody's, oh, I'm on the road, I'm on Facebook, oh, it's great, everything's wonderful, because we only show, like, the shiny happies on Facebook. But the truth of the matter is that I've only done three tours. Okay. And and the path that I took on those three tours was in a 
important path for me to try to take. It actually didn't lead to much more work, but to understand what happened was that my friend Brian Adler, who's an amazing engineer, who's like a super nice guy, and he's also, you know, he's a very good friend of mine, got a call because he was doing Dan Kroll on the road, who's a pretty awesome artist too, British artist, and he met this uh, girl, Chloe Chidez, and she's from a band called Kitten, and uh, Kitten wanted him to do a tour for $500 a week. And Brian was like, uh, hell no, dude. I'm not doing that at all. And then a buddy of him, of his called him up and was like, dude, I heard you were going on the road with, with, with Kitten. And do you know that they're the darling, you know, president of Electro Records? And Brian was like, oh man, that's pretty cool. Hey, Sebastian, you want to do the project? You don't want to go out on the road. It's really, the money's terrible, but it's May. And sometimes in May, things are a little slow. And he was like, you can go on the road. It's like three weeks, 500 bucks a week. It's really bad money, but you're going to get to meet the president of Electra. And I was like, yo, dude, I totally want to do that. So I went on the road. Uh, the tour was horrible. And there's a lot of tension in the band, right? As bands can have from time to time. I don't mind saying that there was a lot of tension in the band. So basically in the middle of the tour, I got to mix at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago and we were opening for a band called The Neighborhood, and The Neighborhood's a pretty big band. So some of these shows were very large, despite how much I was making or despite the size of the band or the level of fame for the band. And in that, I got to meet the manager, the management team for the Deftones, and I got to mix live in front of uh, Jeff Costellis, who's the president of Electra. And Jeff came down after the thing and was like, yo, you know, to, to describe the Aragon Ballroom, it's basically like, it's a really wonderful place. It's an amazingly beautiful place. It's a place that has a DMB uh, system uh, in mains for the live sound people to know, yo, that is a really nice PA system. You know, there's L Acoustics and DMB, and to me, there's nothing else. They sound amazing. I was on a really nice PA with, with like a band that I had been on the road for a couple weeks already, mixing in a really great place in front of people who are very influential. And I murdered the mix. And I did a pretty good job. And and so the two, you know, the guys from from uh, the management company for the Deftones didn't come down immediately, but Jeff came down pretty quickly and was like, oh, also it was 24 hours after <laughs> having appendicitis surgery in Toronto on the road. Oh my and God. I, that didn't hurt my situation for looking good. Uh, is that I, I, yeah, that's actually a really, we were headed into a snowstorm. My stomach hurt and I was like, you know, like you, sometimes you, there's something wrong with your body and you, you're like, yo, this is important right now. And so I avoided going into the snowstorm and I uh, went to the hospital. I had surgery that night. I woke up the next day. I got onto a plane and that night I mixed a show at the Aragon Bar. Um, so I was, I was hurting, you know, like a guy who just had surgery would. Nothing burst, so it's laparoscopic. You know, there's not a really big incisions or anything, but I, I went on the road. And so that helped for Jeff because he was like, yo, this dude is for real. Like, he is not going to lie down on the road. And I, I possess a relatively protective instinct, so I wasn't going to leave my band into the wind and not protect them and, and go out with them. So that night I did a really good job mixing a show in a really amazing place with a lot of vibe in front of like, I think it was like 5,000 people for some people for 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 Jeff and and from then on Jeff put me on two more tours you know these were really amazing tours and the money that I made doubled and then tripled so that I was doing all right you know I was I was out on the road my my thing it wasn't that I was going on the road when I was 16 grinding super super hard and like making no money and like sleeping under the van and like doing that whole world um so I can't exactly say that my live sound uh, career has been super illustrious or that I've been worried about the thing because when you're on the road making like 
uh, $1,400 a week, it's not that bad. I mean, you know, for a studio guy, I got to figure that for me, I don't work every single day. So if I work, if I make about $300 a day, which is what I usually make, and I do three days a week, then that's $900. If I'm going on the road for $1,400 a week, then I've, then I've made a gain. Then I'm coming out ahead. I think the important thing, though, to, to bring out of this story is, you know, like you said, you've only done three tours, but it's, I mean, look at it from afar. I mean, you, you took a chance. You're like, okay, fine. There's some potential good things, good connections that can come out of this. I will accept the $500 a week, even though that totally sucks. But while I'm there, I'm going to do a kick-ass job. And it seems that you kicked ass in the right moments. And as a direct result of your hard work, you, this, these good things happened and the salary went up. And now you and this is the president of Electra. Well, the former, he just stepped down in September. Okay. But yeah. So some good connections came out of that. And, you know, when you, as my brother likes, likes to say, show me, don't tell me, do, do the work, do, do the hard work. Don't tell me how good you are. Show me how good you are. And it seems like you really, <laughs> you stepped up to the plate, dude. Cause I, I tell you, most people would have said, I just had surgery. I'm going to stay home, get somebody else. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that gets into, I, you know, I love NPR. It's like, it keeps me from having to listen to music all the time. So, you know, when I'm headed home, you know, I was listening to something about what is the number one thing that makes students or, or, you know, what, what are qualities of students to keep them successful through their career as students? And recently what was, had kind of come up in this interview, which I wish I could cite or name in any way. I just know it happened on NPR was grit. And I think that grit is a, is like the stick to to decide that this is what I'm going to do. I mean, if, if it was about money, then, you know, I probably would have been like, man, screw this. I'm staying home. Right. But it's not about money. Like for me, it's about a whole different thing. It's about, it's, it's about getting the job done no matter what. I'm, I am like a, you know, I'm a bit of a modern pirate on that side of the road. And even in the studio, I would just not give up. Like no matter what happens, no matter what fallbacks belie my career, no matter what befall my career, no matter what I do, I never give up. I just, you just cannot, cannot give up. The minute you give up, the minute you, you decide you're kind of giving up or the kind of pulling back, I, it, it like my career takes a stumble. Like I can't give up. And I think it shows that I like surgery. I'm doing this. I don't care. Get me on a plane. I'm going grit. That's something that I think without me um, talking to you about it, when Ben brought you up, I was like, yeah, that guy definitely, maybe, maybe I didn't use grit to describe it, but I knew in my heart, I was like, I do have to talk to Sebastian because I know he's been working his ass off and now you're, you're proving me right. (laughs) So this is good. This is good for me. (laughs) But no, here's another thing too. You say it's not about the money, and I, and, I, and I believe you when you say that, but I think that we have to look at your situation in this particular case and think that you kind of, maybe we don't f- focus all of our attention on the money at the moment, but many of us, and, I, and I'll include you in the many of us, you have the long-term view, the long view to say, yes, this sucks now. I'm going to dig in because I think that there could be something positive that comes out of it or not. And I'm not going to fixate on the short-term gains. I'm going to just look at the long-term and look at the long-term that came out of that. 
it definitely paid off. I think that I learned, I, I, I mean, I, I actually think that more than the money that I might have made as that grew, I think that for me, learning how I wanted to be on the road with bands, and I'm not discounting the fact that I'll go back out on the road again, but learning how I can go on the road with bands is really important. Um, in that environment, I was a mercenary for these bands, and I was coming in and they didn't know who I was. Um, to tell the truth about the other two tours that I went on is that Jeff brought me in as a cleanup man. I would walk into tours and more than being an engineer, I was a tour manager and uh, he wanted me to do the tour manager work of cleaning up, you know, disorganized environments or, you know, you know, adverse environments. And I did my work the best I could. But I think that when you're an outsider coming into that, you know, there's so much sensitivity in the studio, so much sensitivity in the live world. Even the, even the, you know, corporate audio world that I do too. So you got to be so sensitive to your environment and being an outsider sometimes is a really, it's not always easy. It's, it can, it can be a gain. It can be, it, it can help you because people don't know your history, but it can also be difficult because you don't, you have to recreate rapport every single time. Yeah. And, and you have to go out like right away with people like, Hey man, let's jump in this little van and travel 12,000 miles. Yeah. And, <laughs> and and maybe along the way we're going to discover we hate each other. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think that we hate each other. I don't think that I hate any of the people that I was with, but I think that, you know, it's an extraordinary journey. Like being on the road uh is an extraordinary journey and being on the road when you're not the headliner is even more an extraordinary journey and it's really tough. And you know, if you can hang that's so much more important than if you're like the guy that can like make any room sound magical. Like you got to be able to hang. Yeah. And, and I think that, I think that, 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 that comes into the fact that not every personality is exactly the same. And so, you know, I've been kind of going back and forth with these guys from Cambrio and I found right away, unlike I had on these other three tours where I was the cleanup man, that they actually wanted me for me and not necessarily for some other things and it was like a wholly different experience. It was just like, I was like, I felt a real sense of belonging and I felt like I was in with the group and that was a really nice thing. So I think that, I think that no matter how much I was making in the end to really, to put a point on the fact that like money doesn't mean everything that it should is that, you know, if we were only doing this for money, be a lawyer or be somebody, I don't know, be something else. Be a hedge fund manager. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, just, I don't think that there's openings for hedge fund manager on Craigslist, but maybe you can work your way up to that. I think it really teaches you a lot about yourself. I mean, you go through some rough experiences, some situations that are not ideal, and it really teaches you about who you really are and what is important to you and how you learn or grow to handle adverse situations. And that just makes you a stronger, more confident person in general. And when you have a strong, confident person on the road with you who's been through some shit, I think uh, that feels good, especially to uh, an artist who is new and sensitive and the world is a, a brand new place and you've been there and you can, you know, be a little bit of a, a guide, a protector, a, you know, whatever. Yeah, that, that, that definitely played into it. I think that on my first tour, I was like, uh, I was like, I was on some fake until you make it on my first tour. And on my last tour, I was like, okay, you know, uh, my, my most recent tour, I was like, okay, you know, go to the Fillmore and figure out how we can extend the guest list by 25 people. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, and I, and I figured out how to do it, you know? So, 
So, you know, it's experience makes everything so much easier. Uh, I want to transition just a little bit, just to talk briefly on corporate audio and what that means. What is corporate audio for you? <laughs> corporate audio is a paycheck. It's, uh, it's the discovery that the fewer faders you have, the more money you make. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It gets more, more simple, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes more defined. And the money just goes up exponentially, and it's it's weird. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is super cool. I I like wearing suits. You know, it's kind of fun to put a suit on sometimes. So you know, you put a suit on, you go to work. You know, I always like want like those like old school pictures of like Universal Audio Studios with the guys like wearing a white shirt and a black tie, and he's like smoking a cigarette. I mean, I don't smoke, but man. That looks pretty cool right there, you know? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, those dudes are looking real slick, you know? In my own little world, sometimes I'm doing a little corporate audio, and I'm like, oh, man, I wonder I'm wearing a suit and a tie, you know? Man, it's, it's not so bad, you know? It's kind of it's kind of swank a little. It's nice to get dressed up and do some corporate audio. What uh, what kind of situations are you having to dress up in for corporate audio? Like, what, what kind of corporate audio gigs are you doing? Uh, you know, they call them talking heads. It's like five guys on a stage talking about their hedge fund and how important they are. And and you got to make sure that everybody in the audience can hear them. You know, you set up some speakers. Usually, that's actually one time that I am involved in a team. Usually, there's a couple guys that set up the speakers for you. And then there's one guy that deals with the wireless. And there's a bunch of people that have lavalier mics on stage. And, you know, they they present for their corporate audio conference. You know, one of the biggest ones of the year here in San Francisco is like... Uh, uh, Dreamforce or Salesforce, I can't remember. Oh, Salesforce, yeah, sure. So Salesforce is like, yo, you know, you make uh you make like ten percent of your annual income in a week, you know? Like that's that's not bad, you know. So and if you're with the union and you jump in with the union, man, you can push some cases all day and make a bunch of money. You know? So so those are those are the times where like that sort of corporate audio world for me is like I find it to be like a little bit of my squirreling away for the winter so that when January rolls around, I don't feel so nervous. How do you get those corporate gigs? Like, where, where, how have you stumbled on those gigs? Oh, that's a, you know, a small world thing, right? So Joe Finocchio is one of the guys that works here. I met Joe Finocchio through, um, through Pat Elliott, which was the uh, engineer at uh, Cafe du Nord, uh, who was also one of my first clients here. He was the engineer who passed away a few years ago. You know, he was very near and dear to my heart. Very nice guy. And I met, he introduced me to Joe Finocchio. And Joe Finocchio works for a company called Got Light which is a pretty big lighting company in the city. And so Joe Finocchio was like, hey, man, we need sound people. You know, they do lighting for these conferences, but they also offer sound as an additional service. So he brought me in and, you know, the first gig I did for them worked out and they just kept bringing me back because uh, you're not a lot of room for error in the corporate audio world. It's not like, oh man, sorry about how much, like, yo, feedback. Basically, you can't even ring a system in the corporate audio world. Like, the, like you're going to get a note the next day, like, there was a lot of feedback. Oh, uh, man, I was ringing out the system, so there wasn't any feedback during the event, you know? It, it, you can't even ring the system out because during the ringing out, people are like, it was, there was some trouble with the system. So you have to be really good at your job and being able to hear the feedback long before it even happens, which, you know, I, I don't know, maybe that's just basically good at your job. But And so you have to be able to sort of really foresee what the problems are going to be in order to get the system up up and running. And, and, you know, it's a different world. Like concert is like point source, corporate audio is distributed source, which means that, you know, you have two speakers left and right in a concert environment, or maybe you have backfills if it's a really big space, but in a corporate audio world, yo, I will take a million little speakers if I can, because you never have enough game before feedback. Cause 
because, you know, Bob's CEO is going to be mumbling on the microphone on the front, never speak up and maybe be like 12 miles from the microphone. So you have to turn things up that are difficult. So it's not like I can say that it's totally easy, but you have fewer microphones to manage and you have to bring a certain skill set to it. And being calm and very businesslike is one that, you know, oddly enough, seems to be in short supply among the engineering world. Interesting. Uh, feedback suppression devices, is that not employed? A Dugan mixer could be your best friend. Do you know what a Dugan mixer is? Should I, talk I don't. That? I'm going to probably mess this up, but I believe the guy's name is Dan Dugan. Okay. Dan Dugan is an engineer, interestingly enough, here from San Francisco, and he has invented a piece of hardware device that has been ported over to software that will take the gain of several microphones, um, apparently in the Waves, Waves makes a version of this plugin, where they will distribute the gain of one microphone across up to 64 microphones. It's, it's really like a piece of magic, and it's a super sick piece of magic, but it's pretty awesome. So to distribute the gain of micro, one microphone across several microphones. So it's what they use like on the Tonight Show for the audience mix so that there's no feedback ever. If they're going to have like, you know, the two guys talking, interviewer and interviewee, and, and they don't ever want any feedback, you could get so much more gain before feedback. It is insane. Like it is no small difference. So... So I, you know, like in the spirit of like what I've always done in my career to like find out, you know, take things as far as I can. We have this X32. X32s are, you know, a cheap and cheerful Chinese console. You know, they work all right. Um, and what I can do is run my Waves rig through it. I run all the inputs into my laptop running Waves rack. And I have a version of the Dugan console on the Waves rack. And then I run that in front of the audience. And it works super well. Like the other day, I waited until everyone left and I had like five lavaliers sitting on stage. And as soon as everybody left, I just wanted to see what it would have been like to not have the Dugan card on. Let me tell you that as soon as I turned the Dugan card off, it was feedback central in there. Like there was no way I was going to pull this thing off. So I, I'm not really clear on how that works. I mean, uh, the spreading of the of the gain across all the microphones, yes. But is it is it, what, can you explain it? Okay. Okay. Let's see. I cannot explain it because it's a proprietary technology, but it, what it looks like to the engineer is on each channel, on each channel, there's an insert. So the insert goes into the Dugan system and the Dugan system basically has, it does not add any gain. It just reduces the gain. So you actually have to run your system much hotter than you would think that you would normally. So you run your, you run your gain. It's post fader send. So you do a post fader send into the Dugan system. And then once you're in the Dugan system, the Dugan system probably has something like an internal bus where it's bussing all the channels together, but only for its own calculation and its own purpose of processing. So it, from there, determines how much gain is on each microphone. It must have some threshold by which it crosses the threshold, and then it will allow the f more of the gain on that microphone through the system. And while that gain is happening, it will reduce the gain on all the other channels while it's going on. And... I guess if somebody else speaks, um, then it will allow that gain to come through. It's not exactly a gate per se, but we could say that in a general sense it is. Or maybe okay. an expander of sorts. Now the thing is, is that, okay, you could take a bunch of hardware and do that with a bunch of hardware. But for some reason, when you're using the Dugan, it works much better than you would think. And as a result, you don't get feedback. As a result, I mean, you can create feedback. You can still do it in any system if you're not operating properly. But you get a lot more gain before feedback. Wow. Yeah. And for the corporate audio people, man, uh, you know, it's a thing, dude. It's a thing. Like, 
I didn't realize how much of a thing it was till I used it. And I was just like, man, if it's the lesson I learned this year, I'm, I'm really happy about that. You know, I'm really happy about it. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up and, yeah. and check that out. Well, cool. Sebastian, I appreciate you being on. I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, it's been pretty informative for me. Oh, awesome. All right. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Sebastian Richard on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. Good to have Sebastian on. Well, as we uh, wrap up this episode, the last one of 2015, uh, as I said before in the beginning, I hope your New Year's resolutions come to fruition and I hope uh, is a good year for all of you and I hope your holidays are safe. So that's it for us. Uh, we are out of time here. Before I go, just want to once again mention uh, we'll be at the Focal Monitor booth at NAM in 2016. So if you're going to be there, please stop by. We'll be there on a Thursday evening uh, interviewing a guest so you can come and essentially watch the podcast happen in real time. The guest is yet to be determined, but we will be there. So that's it. And as usual, our music is provided by Cliff Truesdale, and our voiceover is Chuck Smith. Social media and audio support by Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, Gearsluts.com, and our new sponsor, Vocal Monitors. A very happy holidays to all of you. Thank you so much for this past year. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.